This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about ghosts and ghouls from history, mythology, literature and contemporaneity. This is a ridiculous beginning, (laughs) but we're going with it anyway. We've lent into it now. Hello, Lauren. (laughs) Hello, Alicia. No, we should stop this. We apologize, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. But it is Halloween. It is Halloween. Happy Halloween to our friends out there all across the world who are celebrating Halloween. Or even if you're not, maybe you're in Australia and you're celebrating Beltane. Oh, yeah. And you know what? Of all the things in all the worlds of all the things to celebrate... This is the best one. It is the best one. Correct. But it does mean that for this episode, we're going to get a little bit spooky. This is, look, it's a story that's got a lot. There's a lot packed into this story. I've been really looking forward to this one. I've been thinking about it for a long time. And there's so many elements at play here that are my favorite things. And those elements include devils and demons. Tick. Witches. Tick. Conspiracies. Oh, tick. Hysteria. Tick. Sexy priests and nuns. <laughs> like as in the sexy nuns costumes that you like get for Halloween? scandalous sexy priests and nuns. Excellent. Well, that's about all. That's about it. But that's it. Yeah. That's so, all you need. That is an excellent recipe for a good, good time. Right? So where in the world and where in the midst of time are we going for this story? We're going to the 1600s in France. Good time. To a little town called Loudon. Love it. Which, if you've heard of Loudon, you may know it because of... The Devils of Ludan. Also called the Possessions of Ludan. Oh no! <laughs> you hate exorcists. Like, this story is going to have a lot of exorcisms. Oh no! A lot of demons. Most tellings of this story, including a very famous one by Audless Huxley called The Devils of Ludan, center around a man named Urbain Grandier. But while he is quite vital to our story, I have chosen to centre it around Grandier's chief antagonist, Jean de Anglais, the 25-year-old mother superior of the convent of the Ursulines at Loudon. Ooh, this sounds exciting. And also, just so you know, because it's, 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 <laughs> it's Halloween-y, Lauren's wearing her glasses and leaning over her microphone and mm. the light from her laptop is like doing that thing that's <laughs> lighting her from below. So you look like you're telling me a ghost story Ooh. with a torch around we a campfire. We could get torches. We could. It's okay. That's if you fine. want. To, this is not a visual okay. medium. Okay. Right. That's true. That's I think true. I've set the scene. Let's Everybody imagine. Hey. Everybody get your torches out. Yeah. Dim the lights. Imagine Lauren holding a torch under a chin telling Settle yourselves story. into a good armchair. Put the fire on. Get yourself a cup of tea. I'm a bit scared. And let's go. Okay. Okay. It's 1605. An hour Jean is born to Louis de Belsier, the Baron de Cosay, and Charlotte de Gaumont. They are wealthy. And they are powerful. They have fancy names that you said very beautifully. Thank you. Your I words. try. I 
don't, but I thank you. <laughs> now, our little Jean, despite being born into a life of enormous privilege, suffered an accident as a child <gasps> that left her with a tuberculous spine, which basically meant that she was a hunchback. Oh, okay. And I don't know if you know very much about the marriage prospects of young women Ooh, in I'm the 1600s. Sure, her steeply declined. Yes. yes, which meant that she was destined for a life in the convent because you can't, unfortunately, we're so sorry, but yeah, a hunchback is going to put you off of the market for marriageability. And so she was sent to live with her aunt in a convent and then when she was a little bit older, she went to stay in the convent of the Ursulines de Poitiers and she took her vows and took the name of Jean d'Agne because nuns choose their own names. That sounds like the first name you said as well. So I can't tell the difference. I can't <laughs> no, that tell is, the difference. I did say that name because I don't know her birth name. Oh, okay. Yeah, I couldn't find her birth name. I'm sure it must exist somewhere, but everybody yeah. just refers to her as Jean Okay, good. All right, excellent. And so she was then in 1627, when she was quite young, just 22, transferred to a new Ursuline convent in Loudon. <gasps> and this is the convent that will become the centre of our tale today, Alicia. I'm not going to do that for every bit of this story. I swear I'm not going to no, make that music. It'll become quite dramatic and performative. Yeah, it'll become quite It's a very performative story, though. Well, I'm just already imagining that the camera is panning to, like, the sign that says Ludan Convent. <laughs> and there's, like, the smoke machines going yeah. and it's grey and misty. But if you're picturing a convent with beautiful cloisters and a courtyard and a herb garden and some beehives... Don't. Okay. Because this convent was very small, apparently haunted as <gasps> fuck, and they didn't have any furniture, and so the nuns slept on the floor. Okay, yeah, that sounds much more terrifying. Yeah. yeah. But as the daughter of a baron, Jean was very well-connected and powerful. And according to reports, she was also quite ambitious, mm. eccentric, and she knew how to get what she wanted. Oh, well, we know how women like that end up in history, don't we? They end up the mother superior at the age of 22. Oh, fancy. That's yes. Good. She did play the part of the good pious nun very well, even though she herself later admitted that she was not a very good nun, well, not I, actually particularly religious. Well, I guess that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because we talked a little bit about this idea that, you know, so she's gone into the convent because she's not she can't be married yeah. off. Yeah. And that was very common, like women who weren't, a prospect for, mm. for marriage would mm. often end up in the convent. But at the same time, a lot of women who were in convents were there because they genuinely were religious and devout. Yeah, some but were. Some were. But then there was a also huge... a bunch of young women, usually who were like 17, 18, 19, who were sent there by their families because yeah. they couldn't afford a dowry or there was some other reason why they couldn't be married off. And they were just young women, horny young women, hanging out in the convent. <laughs> or... Horny young women. Let's be honest. There was a bunch of women who didn't want to get married. Yes. They weren't interested in, you know, subsuming themselves to their husband and pumping out a bunch of children for the mm. rest of their life. And convents could actually be a real place of sanctuary for a yeah. lot of women. So convents are a really interesting place for a lot of different mm -hmm. things to sort of gestate because they're not just this one idea of all these pious yeah. women who believe in God come Absolutely. to become a nun. There's all this other stuff. And also like... Older women who, like mothers yes. and old ladies, yes. spinsters, would end up in yep. convents because nobody else was there to look after yep. them. 
So there's a they're quite eclectic. Like some of them are made up of very worldly wise women. Yeah. Some of them are made up of like former sex workers and single mothers and women who yeah just don't want to get married. Yeah. Or women who are gay. Yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, interesting very, places. I think we have a lot of misconceptions about convents. Definitely. But it's a very interesting mm-hmm. scene in which to set our little Particularly story. because this convent was made up of a small collection, just 17 quite young nuns. The average age of these nuns was only 25. Yeah, right. So do you, I don't know, I went to like a, a Catholic girls school and look, there's some intense <laughs> energy when you have like just small groups of young Catholic sexually repressed girls all together in a room. Like things can get a bit weird. Things get heckers. Let's just imagine that. And they're in this haunted little coven. And they're in <laughs> convent. Convent. Coven. Hey, Freudian slip. <laughs> that is an, actually an interesting little slip there. We'll come back to that. Now, all of these girls were educated and refined. And because of this, the locals trusted them to raise good little Catholic ladies. And so they turned the convent into a boarding school, which allowed them to get some money, buy some furniture, finally. Oh, that's good. And so we've got these 17, 25-year-old nuns and then a collection of boarding students. So mm. even younger girls, yeah. teenage girls, all festering together in this haunted house and then (laughs) oh my god this sounds amazing i love it jean invited a priest named urbain grandier the parish priest of saint pierre de marche in laudan to be their new confessor because their old confessor father musant had died now grandier however politely declined he was busy doing other things that i shall get into oh. in a moment <laughs> other things in inverted commas. other things so the confessor right so this is the idea that these women like essentially they run their own convent they're mm. on their own all the time like they pretty much are answerable only to themselves yeah. But then we have this outside priest that comes in to yes. hear their confessions from time yeah, to time. Yeah, and just be like, I'm the male authority. How's it going, ladies? What just do you got to tell in me? On you. Just checking in, just being your divine intercession between you and God. Yeah. How can I help? Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Now, the events at Ludan began on September 22, 1632, when Jean, along with two other nuns, had a strange visitor in the night. The apparition was of a man of the cloth their deceased confessor, Father Moussant. So it wasn't a visitor knocking at the door. No. It was a ghost. It was a ghostly apparition of a man pleading with them for help. But then this visitor either transformed or was joined, I'm not sure, I read it both ways, by another far more terrifying apparition, another priest, this one not at all dead, who swore at the sisters, who cursed at them and bade them to perform obscene sexual acts. Oh, what? This escalated really quickly. I told you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a festering, horny, nun, haunted convent. What do you think's going to (laughs) happen? Now, Jean... She was like, oh, I know who this dude is. This man who's appearing in my dreams and is asking me to perform all these illicit sexual acts. This man is Urbain Grandier. Oh. Oh. The man who refused to come and hear their confessions. Interesting, isn't it? So all of these women had the same 
dream apparition. Yeah, so Jean was the one who dreamt of Grandier the most, but the other girls also claimed to have seen the apparitions of these men. Yeah, right. So I want to tell you a little bit about Grandier because he's perhaps not a surprising figure to be implicated in seducing a bunch of nuns in their dreams. Oh, oh, excellent. That should be great. (laughs) He was quite famous for his promiscuous and philandering ways. And indeed, he had recently got him into quite a bit of trouble. You see, he was, unsurprisingly, quite a powerful man. Mm Mm-hmm. He was the parish priest. He was wealthy. Apparently, he was very handsome and eloquent and educated. And I'm he, sure that's he's spread that rumor himself. Or what do you think he's going to use these assets for? Uh, ladies. 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 Oh, he liked the ladies. Oh, and he wasn't at all bothered about the fact that he was, you know, a priest and no. supposed to remain celibate. He conquered those townswomen like... <laughs> Nobody's business. <laughs> he was really on it, you know. Conquered. Great choice of words. <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't a great choice of words. But I also feel like the power dynamics in a lot of these relationships were perhaps not conducive oh, to definitely. anything other than yeah. <laughs> those kinds of words. For sure. He's definitely the kind of man that yeah. holds all the power and sway here. Uh-huh. Exactly. And he's totally using it. Like I said, though, like he was charming and handsome. Not that that makes it okay, but it, you know, like women did fall for him. Mm, like mm. he was, he was seductive and it worked. Yeah. He was accused of openly courting Madeleine de Bro, the daughter of the king's counselor. He also composed a treaty against the celibacy of priests to this same counselor. So this guy must have been like, hmm, interesting. The man who's been flirting with my daughter a lot has also <laughs> written this manifesto about why priests should be allowed to have sex. Nice. How very convenient. (laughs) He was actually arrested in 1630 for immorality. Oh, oh my God. That's oh. (laughs) And he was found guilty by his enemy, the Bishop of Pontier. However, of course, because of who he is and all his connections and how wealthy and powerful he is, it wasn't long before he was uh, back in his old position. Of Uh, course, uh because that is how the world works when you're a man. Yeah. And in the church. And in the church. Mm. Yes. Let's not get too modern in our discussion. Let's not. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. Okay, but then his eye wandered to the recently matured daughter of his best friend. What do you mean by recently matured? I mean that she was young, that she was too young. You do, don't you? That she was only just. As in she was just like not. Like she was a teenager is what I mean. Which back then that was all they needed. They're like, oh, look, she's got some hips now. Her boobs have come in. I assume. Her boobs have come in. That's is what that, they said. That, that's the phrasing. Yeah, that's what they said. My boobs have come in. They've, they're blossomed. They've blossomed. And that's all they needed. And that was your signal of womanhood and that makes you fair game. And that's fucked. It's fucked. And so this young girl, her name was Philippa Tricont, and he became, I guess, her tutor, right? So her father was the king's solicitor and he and Grandier had been friends for a really long time. So Grandier had literally watched this girl grow up Mm. like he'd watched her as a child he had known her as a child Mm. and had basically just been waiting Mm. for her to reach maturity so that he could make his move on her which is disgusting Mm. and I want you all to remember how disgusting that is because the question of whether or not this man deserves what he gets 
is one that we can possibly Ooh. dive into. Okay. So he started giving quote unquote lessons to poor Philippa who, oh, I mean, look, she found herself in that situation where a lot of young women who are victimized by powerful older men are. She was ruined. She was pregnant. Mm. And of course, being again, the daughter of a wealthy, powerful, influential family, that is just like, that's death. Mm. That's death if you're not married. There's no way that she can come back from that. And that also ruins her family's reputation as well. So it's not just her that's implicated, it's her father who's implicated as well. And And any siblings that she might have. Yes. And so, of course, this means that Grandier ends up with quite a few powerful enemies. He already had a few powerful enemies because he had been pissing off a lot of people like he didn't give a shit if he disagreed with people and got on their bad side he was all about burning bridges so basically yeah grandier ends up with a lot of powerful enemies Mm. which is an important thing to keep in mind all right he's a bad dude noted bad bad dude got it meanwhile back in the convent the strange disturbances continued Jean's Grandier dreams didn't stop, and soon she was raving in her sleep. And despite her attempts to rid herself of the demons through penance, including self-flagellation, which is when you, you know, hurt Mm. yourself. Flogging yourself. The hysteria spread amongst the convent. So the nuns began to hear voices. They experienced physical blows from unseen forces, and one that apparently knocked Jean into a chair. And they found themselves grouped by fits of uncontrollable laughter. That Which would be really creepy. That doesn't sound the worst. Oh, though. and also doesn't sound unlike a bunch of young women to find That's themselves true. in the fits of uncontrollable laughter. Yeah. Like, if that is your like your definition evidence? of possession, mm. then I've been possessed many times. <laughs> maybe you have. Mm, well, maybe I have. Maybe I'm possessed right now. Oh, don't say that. Please don't say that. Carry on with the story. <laughs> and if this wasn't enough, they also soon began speaking in languages that they didn't know. <gasps> They possessed superhuman and supernatural abilities and strength and allegedly were able to levitate objects and reveal secret knowledge. So is this what they're reporting themselves? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Let's just keep that in the back of our minds. Okay. Apparently there are witnesses to things like the levitation and to a few other things that happen a little bit later. But, yeah, I think we need to think about what does witness testimony mean in these kinds of situations. And, yeah, the shared belief is a really important part of this, you know, Mm. because if you think about it, if everybody believes the same thing, if you genuinely, this is what we have to remember, these people genuinely grew up believing in the possibility that devils and demons could do these things. Like this is real to them. And so even if the manifestations themselves are, you know, technically not real, they're perceiving them. They're still experiencing mm. this stuff as being real, mm. you know. And we know how your your mind can play tricks on you, especially Definitely. in the dark, especially when you're hanging out with your in friends. In a haunted convent. Exactly. So, yeah, there's so many things at play here. 
And it's also interesting because the Ludan possessions were not an isolated case and appeared as a part of a much bigger and very kind of complex series of events that involved not just witchcraft, but specifically demonic possession. These erupted in France through the late 16th and early 17th centuries. And a lot of this has its sort of roots in the conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants mm. or the Huguenots as they were in France, which is basically the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, which for those of you who don't know much oh, about it, yeah. far, far, far too complicated. <laughs> skip that. But end goal, Catholics and Protestants, they don't like each other very much and they're constantly trying to outdo each other. So the vast majority of victims in the possessions were women, which is in keeping with victims of possessions through most of history and in most cultures and many of them were nuns Mm. yes so just a couple in 1562 a 16 year old girl named nicole aubrey was apparently possessed by 30 devils whoa and she was publicly exercised every day (gasps) for two months oh my god that's horrendous yes in 1598, a 26-year-old woman named Martha Brossier was thought to be acting under the influence of the devil and she was also exercised. And really importantly, just a few years before the events at Ludan, there was another very, very similar case. In 1611, in Aix-en-Provence, another Ursuline convent was overcome with a series of demon possessions. Now here, a guy named Father Louis Galfridi was convicted of making a pact with the devil and causing two nuns to become possessed. The two were exercised in a holy cave where Mary Magdalene had apparently once lived. Yeah, fancy. That's very fancy. Fancy cave. And as in this case, the two nuns seemed to outdo themselves with their possessions. Okay. So you, the way you say this is very <laughs> suggestive of some performativity. Yes, here. very much. But also I think that this also brings us to that interesting idea of so lots and lots of women involved in these possessions and scenarios, but also we have those male figures too. And, of course, because mm. charges of witchcraft weren't solely and exclusively no. laid against no. women. They were male witches as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So these male figures aren't completely out of keeping with lots of these other stories that we see, are they? The difference here, the really important difference, and as I, I do keep using that word performativity because there's so much performance in this, there's a theatricality in the possessions mm. in the sense both that the demoniacs, as they're called, are articulating themselves in these strange poses. Mm. They are shouting obscenities. They're screaming. They are revealing themselves and they drew large crowds. They mm. drew enormous crowds. But there's Because like you said, that ex- one exorcism went for two months. Yes, and that's nothing compared to like what's coming. Okay. But the other thing is that the exorcisms are also very performative in what the priests are doing. So the priests themselves are enacting these very elaborate performative rituals of leading the women in. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but leading the women in sometimes in chains Mm. and sprinkling holy water and performing very precise movements on the bodies of these women. Like the bodies of the women are becoming really important in terms of what their bodies are doing as demonaics and in how the priests are acting 
yeah. on them. So, yes. Yeah. So it's this really fascinating idea, isn't it, that yeah. this interesting – and it is a very gendered – I mean, it's not exclusively gendered. Like, obviously, as we yeah. said, you know, in large brushstrokes, the body here is so key because, of course – really essentially what we're trying to save is the soul mm. right we're trying to mm. say we're trying to save this intangible mm. ephemeral idea that sits outside the body but really what we're doing is we're watching the body we're the, watching the, the body the flesh yeah, the physical these, body perform yes do these things that it shouldn't be yeah. doing so and I'm doing really... things that it's not allowed to do in normal circumstances like these women are bearing their legs and they're bearing their yes. bodies and they're splitting their legs apart and yeah. they're thrusting and they're sexually assaulting the priests sometimes they would grab at them mm-hmm. you know and touch them in ways that they would never be allowed to touch them under normal circumstances so yes the body is such an integral part of this and I think really importantly that difference between the male body and the female body the female body is the one who is possessed and the male body is being the one who is bringing control back Mm. who's bringing them back into order and back into the sanctioned kind of you know patriarchal realm of of religious acceptable yes exactly because the other thing as well is and this is sort of the case again not just here but in actually various cultures and I read a really interesting paper about this that I will link in the show notes that men are not possessed anywhere near as frequently partly because so many cultural beliefs uh, really don't allow for that because that would mean that a man would be weak enough to be overtaken by a spirit, mm. to be overtaken. Like women are naturally, and I say that quote unquote, yeah. this is according to the logic of yeah. this society in this period of time and in various other societies in various other periods yeah. of time, but are supposed to be passive and receptive and mm. subordinated. And also in that very bodily sense, women are the ones that have the open orifice to yes. let that in. And, and that's a yes. very like that actually might seem like a really trivial or silly idea, but it nope. is really integral. No, it's not at all. so yep. integral to this idea as well, isn't it? Is that yes. women are already this vessel that is open to allow entry. Yes, literally. That's the literal, literal way. And there's the other thing is that the female body was genuinely believed to be more not just open like that but more permeable Mm. so softer and more sort of susceptible to supernatural forces than men they were also considered to be more irrational more sexually driven Mm. and basically in less control of their rationality and over their desires which of course made them a danger to being taken over by spirits and a danger to men right because if you just let women wantonly do whatever they want they're just going to be cracking onto men left right and center right yeah of Of course course. and so they have to be basis yeah yeah Yeah, now that we have all this freedom we are constantly i'm always getting up in men's faces on public transport and just grabbing their crutches getting in their personal space yeah grabbing by the dicks calling them sweetheart telling them to smile absolutely all the time yeah that's because we are far less in control of our desires yeah. than men. And that's also because of feminism. <laughs> really ruined the that's, world. Well, that's why we're allowed to get away with it now, yeah, right? Yeah, I know. That's Back right. then, yeah. 
No feminism. Yeah, yeah that's right. They had yeah. to withhold all that in their sexually repressed convents. I hope all of the sarcasm <laughs> in this conversation is really obvious. But essentially, <laughs> like, when you boil that down, it is this idea that there is something in a female physicality that mm. is there to be penetrated. Yep. And also the other thing is that in these cases, all of these spirits are male spirits. They're male demons as well. Mm-hmm. Coming back to the the possessions at Aeon Provence, before this case, the testimony of a possessed person was not admissible because they were under the influence ah, of the devil. So how do you know if it's the devil speaking? Or That's then? right. The devil's a very notorious liar. That's true. Prince of lies. Isn't that what they call him? Something like that. So this case in Aeon Provence was the first time when the testimony of two of the possessed nuns was actually used as evidence. So that set a really important precedent. Plus... This was the first time when a connection was made between possession, which was known to be a thing, mm-hmm. right, and witchcraft. Oh, okay, together at last. Together at last, the trifecta. Yeah. So in this case, the victim is still seen to be suffering the normal torments of a demon possession. But now the demon was not acting on their own volition, but at the behest of a Witch. Mm-hmm. And of course, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but when we typically think of witches, we do think of women. And we think of marginalized women, we think of powerless women. But in this case, our witch is a very powerful man. <gasps> yes. Right? Urbain Grandier is a very powerful man. And so the women instead become the um, quote unquote victims of his maleficent magic. Or. Are they? So that brings us back to Dudon. Excellent. And to Jean. Now, Father Mignon and another priest, Pierre Barret, who also had his own beef with Grandier, came to the convent to investigate these claims of possession and all the strange goings on. Now, Jean claimed that she had been infected with the demons after Grandier threw a bouquet of flowers over the convent wall. That's random. Yes. Well, she was like, he's obsessed with me. Have they even met by this stage? Technically, no. Because didn't he say he wasn't going to come and hear their confessions? And then she just started dreaming about him. Yes. And isn't that basically where they're at in their relationship? Yep. So Grantia doesn't know her from a bar of soap. (laughs) Okay. But she knows who he is because he's very famous, right? Yeah. So I guess more to the point, she was definitely obsessed with him. Look, maybe she was attracted to him. Maybe she wanted him to be her low-key boyfriend. You know, maybe she wanted him to offer her lessons, right? Oy. And he said no. And she was like, what am I, chop liver? Yeah. Over here in my convent mm-hmm. with my 17, 25-year-old girlfriends? Yeah. Why don't you want to come who would to us? Who would not want to come party? We, we know that you are a celebrated philanderer. Yeah. Like, dude. Anyway, so... In her autobiography, which she wrote a few years after the possessions. Fantastic. I know, it's only in French. I wish I could read it. Disappointment. Um, She confesses that she alternated between love and hate for him. Now, here's a quote. When I did not see him, I burned with love for him. And when he presented himself to me, I lacked the faith to combat the impure thoughts and movements that I felt. Never had the demons created such disorder in me. Dear Lord. That's hot. That does sound, that sounds a bit sexy. She's just a young woman having a bunch of sex dreams that she doesn't know how to deal with because she's Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) When you boil it down to that, (laughs) it all seems so simple, doesn't it? And so 
the first series, yes, series oh. of exorcisms began. Oh, dear. So the exorcisms were approved by Cardinal Richelieu, whose name you might be familiar with because nope. he was very influential in this period. He's in the Three Musketeers, basically. Oh, okay. He was related to one of the nuns in the convent. And he was also good mates with a powerful relative of Jean's. And Grandier had opposed him on several occasions and the two did not like each other. See, Grandier has too many enemies. He does. Guy's a dickhead. Anyway, (laughs) which meant that, of course, Richelieu was like, yeah, cool. I approve this. I'm willing to accept that Grandier is possessing these women. I approve you to go ahead and perform the exorcisms. I don't need any evidence. No, (laughs) not required. And so the two priests performed the ritual exorcisms on the women. Now, I have a little quote from a chronicle of the case, which you can find in Desnau's The Devils of Ludon, and it goes thus. They passed from a state of quiet into the most terrible convulsions, and without the slightest increase of pulsation, they struck their chests and backs with their heads as if they had their necks broken, and with an inconceivable rapidity, they twisted their arms at the joints of the shoulder and the elbow and the wrist two or three times round. Lying on their stomachs, they joined their palms of their hands to the soles of their feet. They uttered cries so horrible and so loud that nothing like it was ever heard before. They made use of expressions so indecent as to shame the most debauched of men, while their acts, both in exposing themselves and inviting lewd behaviour from those present, would have astonished the inmates of the lowest brothel in the country. They uttered maledictions against the three divine persons of the Trinity, oaths and blasphemous expressions so exorable, so unheard of, that they could not have suggested themselves to the human mind. My God, that sounds fantastic! (laughs) So this shit, is there a movie of this? Yes. Yes. Why aren't we watching it? I told you about it the other day. The Devils. Why yes. was I not paying attention to it's this? It's called, oh, it's from like 1970. Oh, that's okay. We'll watch it for Halloween. I was yeah. going to say Christmas. We'll watch it as a happy Christmas movie. Uh, <laughs> there is. It's called The Devils. It's a 1971 movie. It's based loosely on these events. And in the tradition of 1970s horror films, oh, it yeah. contains quite a lot of nudity and, you know, sexual obscenities. But oh, And misogyny. Having, yes, and heavy, heavy doses of misogyny. <laughs> I have actually watched this film. It is very strange. But if that's your kind of thing, if you really love fucked up 70s horror films, then please, by all means... It is an interesting time. Okay, great. So that's intense. Like imagine that, right? And that's I have been happening daily Christ. in public and it's attracting crowds of up to 7,000 people. Of course it fucking is. <laughs> right? I'm not going to go and watch that. I know. It's the 1600s. There's nothing, nothing on going television. on. You've got nothing to do but eat your own toenails for lack of food. <laughs> of course you're going to fucking go and watch that. And Women, nuns, nuns contorting themselves. And bearing their breasts and shouting obscenity. Obscenities. I would go and watch that now. That In a very troubling way. Blasphemes so unheard of that they could not have suggested themselves to the human mind. They're basically saying that no decent human being is even capable of inventing the things that they're saying. So they must have been saying some really dirty shit. That is full on. Imagine. Now, Jean claimed to have been possessed by not one, not two, 
Not three. Oh my gosh. But seven demons. Wow. They waited quickly again. Yes. Asmodee, Gressel, Aman, Levithian, Balaam, Iscarion, and Behemoth. I know two of those names, yes. actually. Actually, there's a couple of really famous demons in there. There is. I'm yeah. They've been causing impressed. trouble for a while. I didn't expect to know any of the words you said, but I <laughs> did know some. And she said that these demons affected her not only during these very violent possession episodes, but they also manipulated her outside of them. So I think she's sort of attributing a lot of her impure thoughts, a lot of her impure deeds to the manipulation of the demons. Mm. Well, what else are you going to do when you just don't have any comprehension of those thoughts because no. you have had it drilled into yeah. you since birth to think that that is impure mm. and to think that those are evil ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want to even acknowledge that you as a person could be capable yeah. of thinking really dirty or evil things. Yeah. During her possessions, Jean blasphemed and ranted. Her body shook with convulsions and cramps until she vomited sometimes. Apparently, she stretched her legs from toe to toe to a distance of seven feet. What? Which sounds fake. Another report says that Jean was carried off her feet and remained suspended in the air at the height of 24 inches. What? Mm. I feel like that didn't happen either. The demons. Oh, maybe it did. Maybe. Look, hey, you know what? I feel like we've discounted the possibility that these, we've already been talking about these possessions, though they're not real, but. That's, I guess, one version of events, right? Yeah, that's right. That they're real and all the supernatural stuff's really happening. That's right. That's a version. Because it's Halloween. Yeah. So that's the version we'll lean into. Sure. <laughs> you sound like you're not going <laughs> to. Jean claimed that the demons even appeared to her in the form of dragons and monsters that would threaten her. They tormented her dreams and tempted her with all of these alluring images. They took away her good intentions, induced unchaste thoughts and feelings, or tried to convince her that God had abandoned her. Was there just something in the water? Ooh. Had somebody just spiked the Well, this is water? the whole, like theory about Salem right that it was the there's that something in the bread there was some sort of there was a thing you know what I'm talking about right look maybe but I think that there's actually a different explanation I think it's really important now to maybe talk about the influence of that h word of hysteria (gasps) because there's actually been a lot of psychoanalytical sort of research Mm. done into these possessions and that's not surprising no (laughs) yeah like even freud and jung refer to like these possessions and of course the links have been made to hysteria now hysteria is not a thing anymore okay we understand that hysteria what was hysteria is actually many many different conditions psychological conditions including disassociative personality disorders depression all sorts of different things. But thinking about the psychology and the socio-cultural elements and how that plays into what we think of as being quote unquote hysteria mm. or potentially really more specifically mass hysteria. Mm. So what is important, as we touched on earlier, is that these women are very powerless. Yeah. Right. And as and um, isolated. Yes. And this article that I've read by Bourgnon uh, that I've linked in the show notes, she argues that acting out the identity of spirits in ritual possession trance offers women an acceptable and consciously deniable way to express unconscious forbidden thoughts and feelings, particularly in situations of social subordination. Now, interestingly, so I mentioned that 
she had a, an autobiography that was mm. she wrote a few years after these events and that was republished in the 19th century. And Charcot, who was a very famous neurologist who did a lot of the early research into hysteria, he wrote the sort of preface to this book. Ah, that's bloody interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is, because he noticed a lot of very, very similar quote-unquote performances in his hysterics. And these were women who he also literally showcased at his Sapeltier school in Paris. So he made a link between hysteria and susceptibility to hypnotism, which he used to treat oh, his patients. patients. Right. He believed that hysteria was a neurological disorder, which was a leap because, you know, I think we've all heard of that stereotype of hysteria being the wandering, wandering womb. womb. Yeah. So he did link it to the mind. He understood that his patients were probably genetically predisposed to it. And he also concluded that it was a psychological disease. And he also was one of the first people to take hysteria in men seriously. And he demonstrated that it was a condition that could be caused by trauma. Mm. So he did make some advances. Yeah, that's an interesting one. In our understanding of hysteria. But his link with hypnotism is really interesting. So the type of kind of dramatic hysteria, which it, like I said, carries a lot of those same elements as the possessions in those articulated bodies, the shouting and screaming, weird, yeah, contortions has been actually ascribed to his procedures, right? So since then, people are like, "Mm, they're probably were doing this not because of their quote unquote hysteria, yes, but because you suggested this to them, yeah, like it's all about the power of suggestion, yeah. and because he obviously knows all of that so well from his work on uh, mm. writing introductions to autobiography <laughs> by women who did exactly this, yeah, yeah. So basically, what I'm saying here is that a lot of these links between suggestibility and the performance can also come back to, I guess, that kind of cultural shared belief, your ability to believe something's happening. So Mm. our contemporary understanding of disassociation can also help to explain this. So basically, disassociation occurs when there is a discontinuity of identity, which results in alterations of how you understand yourself. So the way you present yourself Even the senses that you experience, Mm. the way you receive sensory information, it can affect your memory, your voice, your mannerisms, all kinds of things. And it's a psychological state that involves an alteration of consciousness. So it's not necessarily a conscious thing. It's not a conscious performance Mm. of another identity. It's a submission to Mm. an idea that has been implanted in your mind about another identity. Mm. Mm. Or that has come into your mind from somewhere else, right? It's not necessarily consciously planted by somebody else, but that idea of another identity is implanted in your mind. Your mind subsumes itself to this other identity and temporarily displaces the personality of the self in the individual. Which is pretty much the definition of possession anyway. Yeah, isn't it? exactly. Except that now we, we know that this is actually just a psychological yeah. phenomenon. And it's not actually even restricted to people with disassociative personality disorders it can happen in anyone right it can occur as a result of trauma 
or it can result from suggestion Mm. in the right circumstances, particularly when you have really intense shared cultural beliefs and so strict social structures, such as, for example, a shared cultural belief in the veracity of demonic possession accompanied by ritualized exorcisms (laughs) and the expectation that as a woman you are naturally susceptible to diabolic interference. How does it not happen more often? Yeah. Basically, yeah. So if you live in a convent where you're isolated, Mm. where everybody Mm. believes that these things can happen, then you've got these men telling you that these things are happening. Yeah, yeah. You start to believe that they're happening Mm. and then your brain literally like creates this other identity that takes over to enact that. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Mm. And in that way as well, The same author argues that because of women's powerlessness in this situation, because, again, they're socialised to be passive, socialised to be subordinated, that this could be a psychodynamic reaction against their powerlessness. So basically their mind living out these kind of fantasies that they have, that they have to repress. Mm, mm. Anyway, so... (laughs) Now that we've delved very deep into psychoanalysis. (laughs) Yes. Back to the possessions. Things are heating up. Grandier initially dismissed the accusations against him but became concerned once Richelieu was involved and he petitioned the bailiff of Loudon to have the nuns isolated. Again, great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he was ignored. Oh, good. Finally, he wrote to the Archbishop of Bordeaux, who sent doctors and apothecaries to examine the nuns. They determined that the nuns were not, in fact, possessed. (gasps) And so the Archbishop ended the exorcisms on March the 21st, 1633, and ordered the nuns back to confinement in their cells. So peace returned just for a little, a little while. So soon the disturbances picked up again though, right? And in November, 1633, a formal inquiry began against Grandier and he was imprisoned in a castle in Angers. And a relative of Jean's, Jean de Lambardemont, I don't, I fucking, who knows how to say that? Mm -hmm. A friend of Richelieu and Father Tranquille, who was another of the priests involved in the exorcisms, dug up some satire that had apparently been written by Grandier about Richelieu like years ago in 1618. The dude wrote satire? Well, it actually probably wasn't Grandier who wrote this satire. They just like dug up this stuff, this shit that had been written about Richelieu and were like, yeah, Grandier totally wrote this. He's clearly a very bad man. Um, It doesn't sound like he'd be smart enough to write satire to me. Just bloody apparently down. quite clever. And so, yeah, this kind of added to some of the evidence, which meant that they were able to arrest and try Grandier as a witch. He was found to have devil marks on his body. Oh, yeah. So things like, you know, they look for moles, mm-hmm. they look for birth an extra marks, nipple, yeah. birthmarks, all that stuff. Yep. Though there was a doctor and an apothecary investigating him who were friends of those who were bringing the charges against him. And they were all like, oh, yeah, he's totally got these uh, devil marks. Yeah, I can see the devil mark right here. Later, the marks were found to be a hoax. Ah, Not that that helped the case at all. See, it helps to have friends in high places, right? When you can be like, oh, yeah, I want to try him as a witch. Hey, you, my first buddy who's an apothecary, you also hate Grantier. How about you go and find some witch's marks on him? So Grantier was subject to all kinds of torture, which I'm not going to get into because I'm just not. It's It's not his story. He maintained his innocence throughout, though. But things got worse from Grandier when a quote-unquote pact with the devil 
written in his name was found. And in this pact, he, I feel like 16 year old me has one of those. (laughs) Anyway, I feel like I had one of those and it's floating around somewhere and someone's going to dig it up. Now that I've said it, they will. Was it written in blood? Possibly. Did it name Lucifer as your Lord and Master? It might have. Did it recognize him as your God? Maybe. Did you renounce other God and Jesus Christ and all the saints? Look, it was a long time ago. (laughs) Some things were said. Did you renounce holy oil and the water of baptism together with the merits of Jesus Christ and his saints? I'm feeling like he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, so he did all those things. And then Jean began to experience the symptoms of a phantom pregnancy that she claimed was due to a furious and strange intervention by the demon Iscarion. Intervention. Intervention. That's the word we're using. So he's an incubus now. This demon is appearing as an incubus and impregnating her with a demon Uh, When I say fuck, yes, I mean like fuck. (laughs) I I also mean like, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) So she didn't believe that her sexual fantasies had extended beyond fantasies, but still rumours of her apparent pregnancy spread. So much so that she decided to try to kill herself. Oh, no. She planned to make a large opening in her abdomen (gasps) to deliver the child, baptise it in a bowl of water and then strangle it. Oh, my God. But as she said, God intervened and prevented her from carrying out this plan. I'm so pleased. Yeah. Remember, she was never pregnant. Yeah. Okay. This was never going to happen. Yeah. And there's also some other things about Jean that we're going to get to soon <laughs> to hopefully make that feel okay. Yeah. She's, look, low-key, maybe she's being a bit of a drama queen here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that is a dramatic Yeah. So, idea. But it meant that all of these things are attributed to Grandier. Mm-hmm. Okay, so things are just getting worse and worse and worse for him. Yeah. So as part of the investigations, the possessed nuns began to be tested. And there were a few interesting conveniences For example, some of the nuns who didn't speak Latin were possessed by demons who also didn't speak Latin. (laughs) That is handy. Well, you need to be able to communicate with your demon. Yeah. 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 They're just matching them like on ability level. That's right. Yeah. Hey, demon Jerry, (laughs) you've only got Spanish and French, so you'll be with Catherine. She's only got Spanish and French. That's how they do things in hell. Yeah. They also failed to be able to speak Greek. And it was clear that some of the nuns were coached in how to respond. Okay. Mm. So do you know like when you rehearse a second language that you don't actually speak, but like you need to do it like in a play or something and you you can tell that you don't actually know how that language works? Yeah. I think that might have been what happened. Yeah. You just learn a certain couple of phrases. Yeah. But you don't actually know what you're saying. Yeah. 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 They also failed tests investigating their superhuman strength, their clairvoyance and their levitation. But as the investigations intensified, some of the nuns – seemed to question their involvement in what was becoming an increasingly dramatic spectacle with very real and very terrible consequences. Because let's remember, Grandier is now being tortured Mm. and the nuns know that he's being tortured. And the punishment for witchcraft was being burnt alive at the stake. France didn't hold back. Okay, France was big into that. They they did. They They burnt them alive. Like the US, they hanged them. England, they hanged them. Scotland, they burnt them, but they usually knocked them out first. Mm. France, nah, burn them alive. And so one sister, one nun, Sister Agnes, came forward and claimed that the whole thing had been invented by Grandier's enemies, which I think 
we've put together by now, haven't we? Yeah, that to me seems like a pretty legit yeah. explanation. <laughs> and she said that Sister Jean and Father Mignon had convinced her to partake in the possessions. Agnes even attempted to escape the convent, but she was captured and returned. So now Jean has become implicated in the conspiracy against Grandier. Okay, which again, I feel like the seeds were planted when we remember that Grandier rejected her advances a while ago. And so when Mignon maybe came to her and was like, hey, Jean, I would like your help in setting up my ex-friend. This elaborate fucking race. Yeah, she was probably like, I'm listening. Yeah. But we don't know oh, that for I sure. Oh, I get to uh, play out yeah. naked fantasies and writhe about yeah. in public. I'm listening. Interesting. Because the pact with the devil was then found to have been written in Jean's handwriting. Gee, that's a little bit incriminating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it sort of starts to be revealed that maybe Jean had been approached by Mignon and Richelieu to fake the positions to bring down Grandier. But Sister Jean herself then started to snap, okay, under the pressure. And she appeared one day in the pouring rain in the convent yard dressed in just her shirt. And let's remember the context of the time and place to be anywhere in just your undershirt is like appearing naked, okay? She held a rope around her neck, a candle in one hand, and she tied herself to a tree, threatening to hang herself if Grandier was not cleared of the charges. Yeah. If he was not cleared of the charges. So she's like changed her mind she's massively. She's a complete yes. turnaround. Yes. And I guess the big question is why? Yes. Like, because I guess we've got a couple of different possibilities. Either A, she was involved from the very beginning. She really was approached by Mignot and Richelieu and asked to invent mm. these possessions. Mm-hmm. Or B... Mignot and Richelieu implanted that idea. Through suggestion. Through suggestion. And she genuinely believed it. Yep. And performed all of these possessions. And then the pressure of all of that kind of grew to be too much and she kind of, you know, snapped as anyone might. Or she was really possessed. I guess that's our third option. Yeah. I shouldn't say that so flippantly. Or she was really Really possessed. possessed. (laughs) It is Halloween. It is. In her autobiography, Jean writes that she did believe the possessions to have been real. But she's probably going to say that, isn't she? In her autobiography, yes. Yeah. I feel she would probably say whatever suits her best in her autobiography. And that is actually what suits her best is a really important thing to consider because of her life after these events. Ah. So I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Okay. Because how does it all end, right? So she's she's got a rope. She's in her nightshirt. She's (laughs) demanding now that all the charges be dropped. Well, her change of heart and the recanting of the nuns was seen to be merely more evidence of the work of the devil. Oh, no! Yes. <laughs> You've dug that hole exactly. way too deep. It's, and so they, there's, like, literally no way out. They've gone way too far they with this. Have. It's like, yeah, shit's already in motion. It's Doesn't already happening. It's too late. what you say now. Oh, what a tangled web! And even though there does seem to be all of this mounting evidence... And look, as we've said, Grande is a bad man. He's not a good guy. But does he deserve to be burnt alive at the stake for, you know, Maleficarum? I don't know if anyone, even the worst, Mm. the worst deserves to be burnt at the stake. It's pretty bad. It's not a good way to go. So despite the failed tests, despite his protests of innocence under torture, Despite the revelation of Jean's faked pact, despite Jean's admission, despite the other nuns' admissions, oh my God. it wasn't enough. Oh. And 
Uh, one of his former mistresses came forward with claims of his debauched sexual activities, which included incest, sacrilege, and adultery, all performed within the holy setting of the church. Well, that sounds believable. Yeah, that's I totally believe that. Yeah. And his defenders were forbidden from speaking, and in fact, <gasps> many of them fled France for fear oh of persecution. God. So things are just not looking good. For Grandier. And on August the 18th, 1634, the Royal Commission passed his sentence. Grandier was found guilty and he was sentenced to be burned alive at the stake. As a witch. As a witch. Yeah. Mm. He burnt as a witch. Yeah. Like he's a very famous case of a male witch mm. being burnt alive at the stake. He was promised that he would be able to make a last statement and that he would be strangled before he was burned as an act of mercy. Mm. But the garrot, the like rope around him, was knotted so that it couldn't be pulled. <gasps> so he couldn't be strangled. And the friars who were like gathered around the fire doused it with holy water, preventing him from speaking and preventing him from passing out from the smoke. So they were what? basically using the holy water to move the smoke away from his face so that he wouldn't suffocate to make before he burnt. So to make it even worse for him. Yes. Yes. Meanwhile, all of his enemies, all of the people involved in that conspiracy, they were upstairs in one of the people's houses on the same square watching him burn while they had a party <gasps> and drank wine and waving at him through the window. Oh, Dear Lord. Yeah, so it's fucked. Like, yeah, he was a bad guy, but that is not a way to go. That's fucked. That's He doesn't deserve that. And so then what happens to, that? What so happens Jean, to our lady? Jean still has a career after this. She wrote that she did believe the possessions to have been real, despite what we may think about the veracity of that. But in her autobiography, she does blame her own spiritual weakness and her personal failures and vices for allowing the demons in. She wrote that she had the vices of self-love, pride, arrogance, excessive cheerfulness, <sighs> hypocrisy, desire for public attention, unchastity in thoughts and feelings, insufficient religious dedication, unfaithfulness, and even hatred towards God. All things that one might find very convenient to attribute to demons if one didn't want to acknowledge yes. those things within oneself. For sure. Which I guess she is doing. So Grandier's death, though, didn't actually end the possessions. Like, oh. they continued for a while. Oh, what? They were basically a tourist attraction. So do you think that this is because it had become so not even lucrative because I don't know mm. if they're making money out of this, but it had just become so freeing for these women mm. or they are they enjoying it? Like, I think... Well, again, or, or maybe they're yeah. still genuinely possessed. I don't know because it really did become – and I think a lot of people by this point were like, okay, we pretty much believe that this is all fake or there's something weird going on because the nuns continue to be really sexually suggestive. They continue to tease the crowds and swear and like beg to be fucked basically. And so it's something that had really turned into a spectacle. Mm. It was a it was a tourist attraction. I don't know what the motivations for that would have been. But just that, like having had that sense of freedom, 
yeah. and not wanting to go back. Yeah, to go back into their confined cells, yeah. quite possibly. But Jean continued to – she actually created a career for herself out of this because she was already the mother superior. But now she goes on to have the life of basically a mystic as something of a cult emerges around her. <laughs> so she dedicated herself to reforming herself, to ridding mm-hmm. herself of the demons. She mm-hmm. continued to have exorcisms to get rid of the demons. And she says that after lots of prayer, confession and communion, she gained insight into the workings of the devil and her own contributions to them. And she claimed to have been miraculously cured by St. Joseph and to have the divine favor of a guardian angel who had appeared at the end of her bed. This glorious, beautiful man of about 18 appeared at the foot of her bed. And Was it Aidan Turner? <laughs> Sorry. That's can... how you may picture this guardian <laughs> angel if that's what you choose. Glorious Irish Aidan Turner. At the end of my in bed. In Paul Dark. And St. Joseph, he is said to have retained five drops of a miraculous unction that he used to cure her and they got onto her nightdress. Oh, that sounds like he spaffed on it. <laughs> Did he just okay. jerk off on her? On that, her nightdress was said to have remained an admirable colour long after. <laughs> So, yeah, so St. Joseph has spaffed on a nightdress, yes. which has now become a holy relic. Yeah. And apparently when the demons finally left her, she had the names of Mary, Joseph, Jesus, and Francois de Salle inscribed on her hand. And she would show these names off to people as, like, proof. What do you mean inscribed on like, her hand? Like, they were, like, etched into her hand. Like, carved into her yes. hand. <laughs> your face says it all. No one can see your no face. No one can see my face. Your face is it's, horrified. It's saying a lot. So the fact that she had been through the possessions, that she had rid herself of all of those demons, that she had been cured by St. Joseph and had this archangel guardian and these names on her hand made her basically a mystic. She was now so spiritually close to God and a cult arose around her. So people would come to Ludan to touch and kiss her hand and her miraculous nightdress. And she even went on a five-month tour of France, which she called a pilgrimage to Annecy. And wherever she went, crowds of people appeared around her. She was received by King Louis XIII and Queen Anne. She was received by Cardinal Richelieu, of course, by dukes and duchesses and all of these dignitaries. And apparently the queen even asked to keep some of her nightdress. <gasps> but Jean refused. Well, she's like, that's my spaff. Yes. <laughs> that's my angel Aidan Turner spaff and I'm keeping it for myself. And so, as I said, in 1644, five years after the possessions, she wrote her autobiography and she framed this as a spiritual quest modelled on the life of St. Teresa. So when I was talking before about her autobiography, like this was a part of her selling herself mm. as a new saint. This is her brand. This is exactly. She's developing, a, yeah, literally a brand for herself as being this miraculous person who is a spiritual authority. And because she had this archangel, she would defer to him for spiritual advice to give to people. So people would come to her asking her questions and she'd be like, oh yes, I'll just ask my angel and ask the angel who's a man. And so whose authority everybody is allowed Mm. to believe. And then she would, you know, pass on the messages 
everybody would go home happy. Yeah. So many levels here, aren't there? There are so many levels. She's done very well for herself. But the thing is, is that there's like, so there's the level of, yes, how much of this is that calculated brand Mm. that's working out for her. But also then there's the question of like how much of this is genuine trauma. Mm -hmm. She has been completely and utterly fucked up by this whole experience. Totally. And to the point where she's enacted like self-harm by carving names (laughs) into her Mm -hmm. hand, like – how, yeah, we can't again, know. We maybe can't she know. is genuinely having these dissociative episodes. Yeah. You know, like maybe she really does have a personality disorder. We will never know. And we won't. Or maybe she was just really calculating and really smart and really cunning yeah. and used all of this for her own personal gain. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> That's the thing. And this is what people are have spent a lot of time trying to understand her and trying to understand her through her autobiography. And this is why she's been labelled a hysteric Mm. and she's been labelled a mystic and all sorts of different things throughout the centuries because the accusations of fraud never left her. Mm. But not... So So even in her own time. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly, though, in her old – because, of course, accusations of fraud are levelled against her now, but in her own time, the fraud doesn't come from the same place that it would perhaps for us where we're like, okay, well, maybe she was in from the conspiracy from the beginning and was manipulating events for her own gain. No, the reason why a lot of people didn't trust her is because if she had once been possessed by the devil, then how can we really trust that she's she's now speaking through her – Archangel. And not still through the devil. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons why people didn't believe her anymore. So, yeah, it's extremely complicated. Boy, is it ever. Yes. So what happens to her in the end? Well, uh, she basically just lived out her life. She had this correspondence with another priest for a long time. He remained her kind of spiritual advisor and she was just doing – her mystic nun thing until she eventually died in in 1665 at the age of 60, which is not a bad run. Yeah, for the time for a possessed mm. nun for the time. Yeah, but I suppose as well is that if she was part of this conspiracy, then the fact that she go kind of like goes on, you know, directly after Grandier is burnt at the stake, she still goes on to perform these mm. possessions with these girls. And then she goes on to live this sort of life as this travelling mystic. Yeah. (laughs) Also, if she was implicated in in the sort of this conspiracy against him, then I suppose that, you know, those who are higher up in the church can't really come back at her Mm. now because she's done them a favour in a lot of ways. So anything that she does after that that is – they kind of have to turn a blind eye to it in a lot of ways, don't they? Because well, they're like, well, you know, sure, but she did do us this huge favour and she could very well blackmail them. And the other thing as well that is also really important to remember is, as I said, this is during the Reformation, a lot of the people who denounced her were the Huguenots, the Protestants, mm. but for the Catholic Church, exorcisms were like quite a public way of demonstrating the power and the authority of the church. They were like... We are the church with the power to take care of these demons. Like yeah. we're the ones who've got this under control. So Ghostbusters. she's kind of like a poster child for the power of the Catholic church mm. in that she's been through this whole experience, has then come out the other side of it. Yeah. 
with this amazingly close connection with God and the angels, she's yep. their propaganda yeah. for how amazing the Catholic Church is. Yeah. There's a lot here. And if you're interested, like I said, I'm going to post a bunch of links in the show notes if you want to read, because I did read a bit into the kind of the psychology and the hysteria and all of that sort of stuff. Um, there's also Audless Huxley's The Devils Have Lived On. If you want to read his version of this story, that sort of centers Grandier a little bit more. But yeah, there's so much to unpack. So was that a kind of a, a spooky enough story for you this Halloween? <laughs> I told you it wasn't too, like it had a lot of possessions and exorcisms, but like I said, it was very theatrical, very performative. Like I could have gone way darker. Like I nearly did the story of Annalise Mitchell. That's okay. There was no Linda Blair, so I feel. No. That I feel. Well, you bit. could picture the nuns as I doing was, their Linda Blair moments. I was picturing a little bit yeah. of that. Their Reagan spews. Yeah. The little head spinners, yeah. the little backwards down the stairs. Mm. Yeah. I, there was a little bit of that going on. Yeah. But. For the most part, I feel like I've come out the other side of this just a little bit confused. Yeah. Only confused. (laughs) And I think that's it because there's so many possible explanations, which is why this story continues to fascinate people Mm. to this day. Like, And I think that's why, for me, the subject of possessions and hysteria and those links between possession and hysteria are so endlessly fascinating because it's just not as simple as people believing that, you know, they're possessed by a demon like it is so complex and so like there's so many implications of power dynamics and social and cultural beliefs and that intensity Mm. of your experience and suggestibility there's it's there's so much so much and thank you so much for taking us mm. through it all you're welcome i am um, i feel exhausted yeah and i wasn't even the one telling the story <laughs> so you've done a great job uh on this halloween eve yeah this episode comes out on halloween so enjoy if you are celebrating halloween and just remember that if you're going to a party in a sexy nun outfit <laughs> or you know a sexy witch outfit yeah just, just Take a a moment, moment. just stop for a moment and just think about that sexy outfit, Mm. you know? Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. And where are we going next time? Oh, we are. It's so different to Dear, (laughs) Dear Lord, Lauren, where we are going next time couldn't be any more different. We are going to a land of... Happy, colourful <laughs> brightness. Excellent. We need and it's it. it's going to be in the 20th century and it's just going to be mainly happy. Good. Excellent. Is that okay? We can all wash ourselves of the trauma oh, of the possessions of Ladon. My God, we couldn't be any further away <laughs> from this next time around. Good. So... In the meantime, if you like the podcast and you want to give us a rating or review, please do. It's right there on your phone. Just do hit it. that. Do it. Just hit that five. Hit that five star button. Do it. And if you don't like the podcast, why have you been listening? <laughs> why are you still listening? Why did you listen to this much of the podcast? If you've listened listened to this much of the podcast, then clearly you found something interesting in it. Yeah. Didn't you? Yeah. So you couldn't yeah. have hated it that much? Yeah, you. Yeah. that I'm talking to you. That's <laughs> anyway. You can also find much more of us on Patreon. We have episodes on a whole bunch of extra stuff. Our Holes in History series takes you through some of the lives of more of, of history's forgotten women. You can also get your Deviant Women merch on Etsy. Hey, Christmas is not that far away. That's a good point. Maybe you want to get the Deviant in your life, a pin or a T-shirt. Ooh. How? 
have a look. I, there's still time to post what stuff out. What a good out. idea. Could happen. And so until next time, thank you so much for joining us on this Halloween and we will see you in a fortnight's time. So as always, a very big thank you to India Hui for the music, Brendan Davies for the sound, and to Dan, our executive producer. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.